You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm bringing you this conversation with Nick Revel, who I first encountered on the comedy circuit probably around 2005, 2006, when I was just starting out and he was returning to stand-up after a 10-year break uh, in which he worked as a TV writer. So he's um, he really brought himself back to comedy in the most humble of ways, kind of chipping away at the open mic circuit while he, he relearned his craft. And so we have this unprecedented uh, opportunity with Nick to sort of see his experience in comedy as kind of um, having had a 10-year break, he came back to it and felt he could sort of, he, he could see uh, how different things were, not just in green rooms, uh, but in audiences and on stage. Um, so we had the opportunity, like um, one of those, uh, uh, I think I describe it to him as one of those, uh, like, you know, if you see someone core out a chunk of ice, of permafrost, and you look through it and you see all the different uh, strata of uh, of. of time. Oh, you get the point I'm trying to make. Uh, I, I hope I have conjured up for you a visual image there that is similar to the one I've got in my head. So this is Nick. He's, he's a lovely man, very, very funny and very warm, as you will hear, and possessed of enormous comedy knowledge and experience. We can all learn a lot from him. And if you're in the Insiders Club, you can join up at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to hear 25 minutes of extra material exclusively for you, um, including Nick talking about the excess of the early days of the store. Uh, he tells us about how he was almost beaten up by soldiers at or after a gig. And also there's some excellent technical advice on how to absorb an instinct for the shape of a joke. Ugh, proper stuff. So that is all for the Insiders Club. But now there is a solid hour or more of this conversation with the fabulous Nick Revel. This is a really nice house in a really Thank nice you. bit of London. Well, Have yeah. You, did you buy it for cheap 30 years ago, or uh, are you rich? Uh, <laughs> answer one, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, it, it's Holloway. Um, we bought a flat here in 1987, just across the road. Okay. Uh, on the road next to where Suggs lives from madness. And I'll let you into a little secret. His house is not in the middle of the street. It's towards one end. <laughs> anyway, um, so we bought, we basically just looking for a flat that was within a a cabable range of, of, of the centre yeah. when I was doing the comedy store all the time um, that we could afford. And, and so we ended up here 
uh, and then about two years later, this house came up for sale. And here's, uh, here's a useful life lesson. The reason we got it was because we were over at some friends in West Hampstead and we got so pissed that we stayed over. I didn't get up until like midday, went to the news agents. They didn't have the observer. My God. Uh, of course, you know, West Hampstead, it sold out. So we bought the independent on Sunday and in the private sales section of the uh, uh, of, of, of the housing stuff um this there was a photo of this house and mirror said that's that house so we would never have seen it if we hadn't have uh, indulged in some serious alcohol abuse the uh, the night before <laughs> so and what's I, the life lesson to get the life lesson is just yeah, go, yeah, well both really but you know we wouldn't have we would never have bought that paper if we had gone got up in time to to buy the observer so you know yeah alcohol can be your friend <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that was 91 we bought the house and you have and been we were lucky then because this was not you know I mean similarly with the flat it was you know it yeah. was affordable you know I can get really fucking angry about how terrible London is going in terms of property and all that but you know everybody yeah. is anyway so we don't really need to do it do we but it's it's appalling now like people can't afford to live in the centre of London um, Stuart was talking about that about the, the economic effect on on comedians of having to earn so much money yeah. right from the off you know and how that has that effect on the kind of things that you do and how you relate to trying to get on in the clubs rather than taking chances and yes blah, because blah, blah, blah. you presumably you're I mean you've been doing comedy f- nearly 40 years yeah nearly you? 40 years I did so, first did the comedy store in 1980 so. and you'll have started at a time when a lot of comics as I understand from that era were able to draw the dole or a job seekers allowance or whatever it was so called it was, uh, in order to yeah, yeah. pursue you could go and say to someone in a suit I'm being a stand-up comedian. That's right. Pay my rent. Yeah. I mean, I never did that myself because I was fortunate in that I'd been writing scripts beforehand. So I was selling jokes and sketches and so on. So I was... uh, Side off on Weekending, which was this long-running topical radio show um, of variable quality, but it could be very, very good. And loads of people started on that. Like, uh, I think the original writer was Pete Spence, who wrote... To the manor born. This is like mid early seventies or whatever. And then you have people like David Renwick, um, Andrew Marshall, <clears throat> uh, Guy Jenkin, um, Andy Hamilton. Um, loads of people worked on it to some degree. And what was great was that you learned how to write to a deadline because you had to come up with you know jokes and sketches read the paper and come up with the jokes and sketches um, in time for them to be considered. And then I, I did that. A f- I sold jokes to that and to not nine o'clock news as well when I was at university. Not not in a lucrative way, but I did sell quite a bit. And um, so when I came to London, I was selling jokes and sketches to them. So I, with the writing and the odd gig, I had enough to survive <clears throat> without having to get the job, whatever the hell it was. There was a p- particular name for it you know some kind of you got about 40 quid a week which of course in those days was kind of feasible as yeah. a as a little you know basic salary um, i want i want to talk to you more about that origin but just while you mentioned not the nine o'clock news for me not the nine o'clock news was one of the very first if not the first it was like i uh, i think my parents had a record a vinyl record and yeah that was huge that, that's right it was and, huge that and that I, I sort of discovered it whilst looking through i mean god knows i must have been nine years uh-huh. 
And I remembered, like, it was a big awakening moment for me of kind of going, oh, this is grown-ups being silly. Yeah. And there were so many, I mean, I probably learned a lot of them by heart. I remember very specifically on a car journey to school, doing a bit of a sketch for my friend Gavin and him uh-huh. going, but what does that mean? And I didn't know. Because <laughs> I, I could listen back to them now in yeah. an archival way and go, oh, that was a reference to Thatcher or yes. Pogoing or, you know, really specific <laughs> yeah. sort of things. But at the time, it was just this sort of delightful chaos. I could hear the rhythms of comedy. I got why yeah. some jokes were funny. Yeah, I was going to say rhythm is so important. And that's the... I mean, I, it's weird how it, it was exciting because it was a it was a completely new kind of uh, event, a completely new kind of show, you know. I mean, I always remember it, it the same effect of watching Pete and Dud, uh, not only but also when I was really young. And then, of course, Python had the same thing where... You know, even if the even if the jokes didn't all land or whatever, you, you had this sense that for half an hour you were getting something which was outside everything else and different. And I, yeah, think that's really important when you get those glimpses into um, outside of the mainstream. You know, yeah. unusual, and you love the fact that it's like when I, you know, I love the Rolling Stones because my parents hated them. You know, yeah. and and, yeah, and yeah. it was the same with certainly with Python. It was like what. what I don't get this. There's this sort of a through the looking glass, almost like yeah. a, like an acidy hallucinatory yeah. kind of experience where you go, yeah. oh, the other the peep through here and yeah. there's the other world. There's and a the whole other energy, different energy and, and and angle going on. Yeah. So who were you before that? Were you a funny kid? Were you? How did you bring yourself to Probably the idea? I was. Of, yeah. I mean, I uh, you know. I think so many of us have those fantasies about, you know, being a rock star or an actor or whatever. And I fairly quickly realised that if I was going to go down one of those routes, it would be as a comic. I mean, I loved Peter Cook and Dudley Moore and, you know, I would do sort of Peter monologues and stuff like that. Um, and then when I was at school, we, we used to go to the folk clubs a lot. There was quite a big folk club scene and me and some mates used to do kind of comic songs and parodies in the folk clubs. There's a lot of the traditional people really and whereabouts hated. in the country? This is in West Yorkshire. in West Yorkshire. So we used to do comedy and, you know, comic music and um, and we do things like bonzos. You know the bonzos? Yeah, 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 yeah. We used to do, we used to do songs of theirs and we'd write our own songs and, uh, and we'd parody the other acts and so on. And that, that is funny. I it's wonder, quite fun. I wonder how many... People, or I suppose I'm, I'm just kind of noticing a thing that comes up from time to time when I talk to comics about the very beginnings. That thing of there is some existing comedy that you love and you perform a sort of cheerful tribute yeah. to it at school yeah, or somewhere. Absolutely. That's almost part of the pedigree of comedy that no one ever really talks about. I wonder if that's still the case now. So many oh. people I know would have got... I remember when I was a kid, me and my little brother used to do... Um, there was a Red Nose Day book yeah. of sketches, and the idea was you'd get the book and you'd put on your own... They gave oh, you a right. licence to use any oh, of the cool. sketches, like the four Yorkshiremen with yeah. all these classic things. We were like, you know, 10 and 8 or whatever it was, yeah. so we didn't, we didn't kind of turn a, a charity profit from it. But um, uh, a friend of mine's brother was at like a rugby club do, maybe... 10 years ago and there was a charity event and a bunch of young guys there were doing some of We Are Clang. You remember <laughs> Greg Davies and Steve Hall and Marek Larwood's thing? Yeah. They were just doing the, the, I think it was a sketch where he's like he's lying sideways naked smoking a cigar out of his butt or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah. classic Clang kind of sketch. 
And at the time I was like, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing that. More and more I realised that's part of... Of course. That's how you yeah, get into it. absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, I remember one time we, we used to put on our own evenings sometimes at, at one, one of the folk clubs and uh, the one of the Amnesty albums, uh, they, they'd done a, a... Oh, I can't even remember what group it was from originally, but it was John Cleese and Jonathan Lynn who went on to write um, uh, yes, Minister, and they okay. were doing a sketch of Michelangelo and the Pope. Oh yes, arguing over the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, yes, yeah, and we did that. I may not know much about art. Yeah, but I know no, what I'm I like, the bleeding Pope. Yeah, I know yeah, I I like, like, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we would do that as well, you know. And um, yeah, I think it it uh, it it's, uh, it's inevitably. Well, I mean, where do you start? You know, you have to start by. Uh, emulating other people because you've got no frames of reference. You maybe think you want to be funny in some kind of original way, but how do you do it? Yeah. I mean, I, I can remember when probably leaping around a bit, but I remember seeing the, um, the Richard, the first Richard Pryor movie mm. that came out, which was 79 or 80. So I was still at university and, uh, and I, I, I remember seeing that and it was just, uh, that was a real turning point. I'd never seen stand up like that where he was just so extraordinary across across such a range of skills you know working the audience doing these incredible fantastical set piece scenes where he's deer hunting or whatever and the whole range and kaleidoscopic energy of it i i, I just oh god you know that's what you can do with stand-up and again then you you know when i first started trying to do it do, do stand-up it would be a case of yeah trying to borrow or be influenced by that use that as a kind of guideline and also Lenny Bruce I was listening to a lot and you know so there am I as a sort of 19 year old you know university student from middle class white English university student doing doing stuff based on on Lenny Bruce you know heroin addict and 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 and, and New York hipster you know which is completely incongruous but it gives you a point to start you know yes. What do you talk about? How do you talk about it? Blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I think you, you, you everybody starts. I mean, you do see people like uh, Eddie Izzard and, and yeah. Stuart Lee as well. You know, you see people who... Acaster is the new one. Right, You see there's yeah. hundreds of little James Acasters <laughs> yeah, out there. Right, yeah, right, there you go. But then, you know, people will find their own voice out of that, hopefully. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. So you had a kind of hiatus I did. In, in stand-up because mm-hmm. I remember when we first gigged together, which must have been in like 2005 or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. And um, I remember the 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 story of Nick Rebel. I, I tell you what, I remember <laughs> hearing about you was this is the guy that used to write "Drop the Dead Dog," and I was like, <laughs> yeah. "Oh my god!" I remember that Gus and you know, uh, was it Stephen Tonkinson? Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I used to really enjoy. I used yeah, to watch yeah. that with my parents. Was, it was so funny. It was a fun show to work on. Yeah. And. Um, I, I, remember, I remember kind of going, all oh, right, that's like, this is a, a sort of a, a slightly, I won't say elder statesman, but it was like, this guy's been around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, and I was like, hang on, he's doing the same gigs as I am. Yeah, the yeah, lowest yeah. worm on the well, open spot thing. Well, mm. well I, I remember being so impressed. I thought it was so classy because what I had heard, I think from other people and possibly from you, I remember we, we talked at the time, um, was that you had taken a break yeah. and with absolute humility <laughs> you had started working the open spot yes. circuit again yes. to put it back together, yes. which I was so impressed oh, with. Oh, thank you. No, I, well, you know, I mean, I took 10 years off and I was uh, I was writing sitcoms and other stuff and um, we can come to talk about that, but just on that point of when I got back onto it, I, you know, I used to miss it sometimes. I, you just miss the kind of the buzz of it, but also just the kind of, you know... 
good dressing room. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Just love hanging out and just, you know, you know what it's like when you're in a dressing room with a good bunch of people. There, there is a kind of comedian's mentality towards, you know, where there, there are certain jokes that you know you, you can crack in a dressing room and just the joy of people pinging it around. But it's it's a different the kind really of The really racist stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's it, that, that kind of people who understand comedy know, you know, you, you, you know, it's a different vibe when it's just comics in the room. It's just that side of it I missed, really. Just hanging out with people. But, you know, the longer you leave it, the less attractive it is to go back because you know that, you know what it's like. You have to keep gigging all the time to keep your reflexes sharp and just to know what the common references are and how audience, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, well, if I'm going to come back, I mean, I could probably have written an hour-long show, uh, I was doing before I st- I did a couple of narrative shows in that period, but they weren't they they were mainly funny, but they were more a theatre show than a than a stand up show. And I thought, well, I could technically I could do that again, and you know, uh, and work on that route. But I thought, well, you know, it's a bit like if you walked out on a relationship and then you turned up on the door ten years le- at the door ten years later. Hello, I'm back. Well, I don't want to talk about where I've been. Let's just. Let's just go back to where it was when it was wonderful. You can't, you you, you, you you have to work at it to get that relationship back. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be honest about this, I've got to relearn everything because it changes. The consciousness of audience and comedian changes every day. You don't notice it when you're doing it every day, but it does change. You know, the reference to who is the stupid politician or the, you know, the, the tacky celebrity or whatever, things like that, you automatically know when you've got to go from, you know, from what change to a new one. We haven't done it for 10 years. All those little antennae, let alone your own confidence and ability and ability to, to remember the jokes. It's all gone. So I thought, I've got to start this at the bottom and relearn it, you know, because it, it, what else can I do? You know, I've got to do it like that. You know, going on a sort of, oh, I, I used to be uh, I used to be fairly high up the tree, so come and do, see me do solo shows. Well, you know, I thought, no, I've got to really relearn it and get, get the, you know, get the sense of it back. And so I, I started ringing around and, you know, emailing people or indeed writing probably that stage. <laughs> writing postcards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, absolutely. And some people didn't know <laughs> who the, the hell I was. That's the first time I've ever heard of anyone writing for well, a gig. <laughs> I, did, I did. I just mailed everywhere, you know, and some people got back and remembered who I was. Some people rang up and said, oh, you know, don't, don't, don't come and do five, come and do 20. I remember mm. you from before. Blah, blah, blah. I said, well, no, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do 10 and then because I don't know how much I've got that really sure. works, you know, and I thought I'd rather come down for you and do 10 knowing that I've got 20 rather than go down yeah. doing 20 and finding out I've only got 8 course, course. and then you're pissed off rightfully and I'm pissed off because I've let you down so I thought you know just you've got to do it that way and um, so yeah I worked my way back up so we, I feel like we have a unique uh, it's almost like a, a, an opportunity here to look at how the game had changed yes. over those 10 years. It's yes. almost like we've got a kind of an, you know, where they core out some ice yeah. and you can see the stars. Yeah. What was most noticeable about audiences or stand up itself, the right. beast itself after a 10 year break? What was, so, what did you notice most abruptly? Um, the audiences by and large had gone more mainstream inevitably because more people were going to it. You know, jonglers had become a chain. And so it, was becoming an automatic mainstream form of entertainment rather than something that the the hip 
kids went to in a grungy little club sure. somewhere in a little town or whatever. Um, so therefore, the frame of the frames of reference that you could take for granted mutually uh, had shrunk. I would say. Okay. Um, so. Oh, because the, the okay, so the audience is broader. If you so have, the yes, in jokes become that's less right. likely you know, to pop off with everyone. Yeah, if okay. you went to, if you went to, well, if you went anywhere to do an alternative gig, you could be pretty sure that most people in that room were reading the same newspapers, had the same interest and the same rough breadth of interest in the news. And obviously, because I do a lot of topical stuff, that's crucial. So you had to relearn how to, uh, you know, how to put political or satirical stuff across. It became a, a, a different proposition. Um, and then, of course, you, you had a lot. Uh, and then that becomes a feedback loop between the audience and, 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 and the performers. Whether I think there was less risk, probably. Um, I think one of the exciting things about the store in that period from, let's say, mid-80s through to early 90s was that you had a lot of people who knew what they were doing, so you had some really good acts on, but nobody was hugely famous. Mm. But people knew that they would get a good show, but also there would always be, let's say, uh, an open spot or an audience spot. So there was, a, there was, a, there was an unpredictable element, element in it as well. So you never quite knew what was going to happen still. It was a bit more ordered than the initial chaotic anarchic days. But the great thing was as well, I think that you were allowed to fail. You could take a risk. Like one night if you wanted to go, you know, sometimes you'd do a bit, I think, well, this doesn't work in a club. This is a really long routine. And if I'm into it and it doesn't work, where's a bailout point? I can't get out and do something else. But you think, oh, fuck it. I've been there. You know, this is my fifth gig of the weekend. I want to have a bit of fun. Yes, it's two in the morning, but I'm going to do this really, you know, unlikely bit. So you could, so, and sometimes, of course, that would work. And that was really exciting because you know what it's like where you're trying a, a piece in, um, in a non-ideal environment. Mm-hmm. You find different ways of doing it. You'll edit it. You'll find different angles or energies and delivery and stuff. So it was really exciting when you could make it work. On the other hand, it might tank. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that was sort of encouraging. And I quite like that because you could see people taking chances here and there. And if they knew that you could deliver solidly, then it, occasionally somebody goes off on one and it doesn't work, then that was part of the excitement. And I think yeah. that generally that kind of uh, unpredictable element has gone out of it, I think. So I would say just generally got more mainstream and, um, yeah. That was, was, the, was the political leanings of the audience more diverse as well? Yeah, absolutely, if they had any or have any, you know. I mean, obviously it varies from gig to gig and, you know, it depends how you do the material, but I think it's more of an uphill walk. Uh, in a lot of uh, in a lot of gigs now, I mean, some people do it very very well, but it's interesting seeing you know just the whole construction and approach. I think is um, is a bit uh, a bit safer now. And I don't say that derogatory in a derogatory way, mm. but you know, safer in terms of just to make it work yeah. rather than risk splitting a room. You know, yeah. Like, and in terms of the um, the comics in terms of the work the comics were doing and the dressing rooms, mm. like what was the difference there? Because I guess if jonglers had happened in that gap, yeah. suddenly they all had kind of risen to a more prominent position. Yeah. Suddenly there was a more uh, pressing financial element. Like if there's there's more comics, yes. so there's less work for the yeah. individual yeah. comics, so they've got to be reliable. In yeah, the, and exactly. And there's more money at That's stake right. and there's Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also just because there's more people doing it, 
if you like, the, the, you, you would get tribes developing of different, uh, you know, different people, different nature. Of course you do, you know. And I think it's great that there's so much of it in, in, in many ways. At the same time, you think, oh, God, you know, it, 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 it's... If you chase the lowest common denominator the whole time, then it becomes very... Well, it becomes uninteresting to me, you know. Um, but then everybody's got to learn somewhere and they find their own voices and their own style. And you see brilliant people coming through and so on. But um, I, yeah, I find it, I find a lot of it, I always love watching comics. I, f- I find a lot of it less interesting now. Um, maybe that risk-taking element that you'd see in people is part of it. And people have business plans and, you know, the yeah. so the, there is a kind of, um, what's the word, there's a sort of surgical attitude to it, which I think, you know, I, I, I kind of like, kind of like seeing a little bit of craziness here and there. I don't see that as much. I mean, you do, you know, obviously you've got the odd person doing it. But yeah. you've got so many different club scenes now, if you like, because there's so many different strands of it, you know. And again, I, when I came back, I thought, well, I want to be able to work all those strands. I don't really want to... I didn't want to come back and be working the mainstream clubs slickly and proficiently as an end in itself. But I wanted to get to the point where I knew that I could do that if I wanted to, uh, again, sort of re, re-earning my, uh, yeah. my entitlement to be there. Yeah, yeah. But then I, I wanted to do that and then start branching off into stuff that I found more challenging, you know. I mean, one of the reasons that I stopped doing the stand-up was because I remember one night I was seeing the store and I shut this heckler up without talking. Uh, I just looked at him, looked at the audience, looked at him, looked at the audience, da 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 and, you know dealt with it like that and as I was doing it I was remembering my first gigs there where utterly terrified you know and yeah. a glass would go down on a table and you took this as a sign that everybody in the room hated you and the absolute terror that I had at the beginning and I suddenly thought here I'm yeah, I'm de- dealing with this guy without speaking I thought I kind of know what I'm doing now and of course that's the point where you should kick on to really explore how to get really really good but it was almost as if I proved everything to myself and I wanted to go into different areas and, and I've been doing the odd bit of, I've been, I've always been doing a lot of, of, of script writing and in various forms. And then I got hired on drop a dead donkey and <clears throat> I was really interested to, and then I had my own sitcom as well. And I was, I, I was interested to explore narrative comedy because I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to write a sitcom properly. You know, I knew how to write sketches and so on, but so I thought that's the new challenge and stupidly, because I used to turn over loads of topical stuff all the time. I thought, well, I, I've got to stop doing stand up because I won't be able to write a new three minutes every time I go on stage, which is, you know, how stupid is that? You know, but that's what stupid I did because, well, because, you know, does everybody do that? No, they don't. So I could have just carried on doing yes. a stock set and dropping a little bit in less frequently, but keeping the oil running around the motor. Um, but I then just concentrated on doing doing the sitcom, and I did, as I said, I did a couple of solo shows in Edinburgh, eight, 93 and ninety five, which were one was anecdotal, uh, true stories sort of dressed up as a. It was called the Ghost of John Belushi flushed my toilet, and um, and then the next one was called Liberal Psychotic, which was more, which was complete fiction, but it was the same kind of style where it was it was a narrative and it was largely funny, but not entirely so. And it was an hour and a half or whatever, and I toured him. And of course, once you've left it alone for a couple of years from doing stand-up, it's terrifying to do it again. So I just carried on writing, writing narrative stuff. 
So this is Nick. He's just so lovely, isn't he? What a lovely, warm man. Uh, and just, uh, I could have spoken to him for hours and hours. He, he's such a breadth of knowledge about stand-up. And as we will hear, he is only just, he says, only just finding his voice some 40 years, nearly 40 years into his career, which is, I'm sure, not the case. But it's so, you know, I, I always known him to have a very strong and uh, flavorful style. But uh, I love the humility with which he talks about his craft. More from Nick in just a second. 25 minutes of extra material available from comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you are so inclined. And uh, remember, Nick is going to be at the Edinburgh Festival. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. I'm going to take a run at remembering his show title. I think it is the, uh, what is it, uh, Polly... Eurasian dictators and their fabulous homes. Something like that is a fantastic title. Check the show notes because I'm not doing it justice. Um, but uh, you can go and see that at the Edinburgh Festival. And also there's a link in the show notes to my own work in progress show, Primer, three o'clock every day at the Monkey Barrel. I, I can tell you that without looking. And uh, a rather spectacular poster is currently in development and should be concluded soon. So I look forward to tweeting that at you as well. Follow me at ComComPod on Twitter or Instagram for the latest updates. And do join the Facebook group, which remains one of the nicest, sweetest and most charming corners of the internet. I haven't had to boot anyone out for weeks now, but when I do, it is immediate and without mercy for the slightest of infractions. You prune it and it ends up being a lovely, lovely garden. So do pop along there. There's some really interesting stuff in it. That's all for now. Let's get back to this conversation with Nick Revel. Before we get on to the sitcom stuff, I'm really interested in that thing you said about like recognizing that now you have learnt that moment on stage, yeah. shutting the heckler up with silence, yeah, and clocking, like realizing that oh, I, I may have done what I came here to do, or like I've yes. completed some aspect yes, of the project. Right. I've proved to myself yeah. Yeah. the things uh, which I had to prove, yeah. And I suppose in in some way that is, I mean, you you said it yourself, like that's when you should kick on to trying to get really it's, good. Yeah. And we, we don't often think of that, I suppose, as um, one of the obstacles or one of the barriers between yourself and being brilliant. You don't yeah. think, oh, what if I get good enough? Yeah, <laughs> Do you yeah, mean yeah, like yeah, that yeah, can yeah, actually yeah. stop you? Yeah, there must be absolutely. comics out there. Who, there must be loads of comics out there um, who who settled because they got good enough to... Yeah. To, yeah. to tick the box. I'm a comic now. I'm yeah. proper. Yeah. Without necessarily feeling that. Good observation, that, because what it brings me on to think of is where I'm at now, which is, I don't know, for, for a start, I think when you get to that point, oh, I know what I'm doing. It's a bit like in martial arts, if you get your black belt, that's where you rip that. And people think, oh, he's a black belt. He knows how to do it. But you talk to any martial artist, and once they get the black belt, and you start getting your dance, that's when you start to really learn it. Sure. You have to constantly think this is day one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got and it now. You've now got to a start. point where you, 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 yeah, you can kick on. And I, you know, I, what I've done in the last few years was uh, I've been doing these, I'm going back to doing longer narrative shows. I still do club sets, but largely I do these longer, hour-long shows that I've been breaking in in Edinburgh and then doing little tours. And I really... I'm really excited about it because, you know, the cliched but phrase which is perfectly apt, which is why it's a cliche, about finding your voice properly. I feel 
I finally 40 years in <laughs> absolutely well, 38 years in I guess it sure, was sure, sure. when I did I did a show uh, in, in Edinburgh called Gluten Free Jesus or and I did yes. a radio show called Treasure of the Illuminati Leprechauns and it, it's a narrative it's a surreal narrative with satirical offspin and so on and I I I I've now done three and I'm the fourth is kind of it's, can you believe this fuck me I I I, I the, the the new Edinburgh show is ready, bar polishing and tweaking. But here we are in talking in mid June, and it's really exciting. But the point being that you know I did the first one and I was really happy with it, and I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. It's combining combining all the elements that I like doing, which is sort of quite cleverly structured stuff and narrative with the old satirical uh, remark. But rather than doing it polemically, so that you're going to sort of divide an audience and confront doing it in this narrative style where the, the essence is on what comes next, what comes next, trying to get the audience to just be gripped by the story. And I thought, well, will I be able to do this again? And now I'm on to the fourth one, and it's really, really exciting. And, you know, at my age to think, oh, this is, this, oh, the, the door is suddenly open to what that's I so should great. be doing, you know, oh, 40 so years great. of all this stuff, you know, and I'm happy with a lot of the stuff that I've done. But now in the last three, four years, I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is the voice. This is the style, and it's so exciting. I mean, some people get that on day one, yeah, you know, occasionally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but but it, it's really, really exciting now. And 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 creatively, I just you know, I'm just so I don't know. I can't explain it. It's just thrilling, frankly. I've heard those shows. You sent me those three. Oh, yeah, right. uh, Putin's buttocks. Yes. I don't know the title. Gluten free yeah. Jesus, and then uh, and then Nick Evil. Revel versus Lily. Lily Evil, Cat Queen of Earth Planet. I really enjoyed them. I really enjoyed them, and I totally agree. They sound exactly like you. I listened to them, having not heard much of your stuff for a while. Right, yeah. And when, oh, this is what he's doing. It makes Uh perfect sense. So they chimes with you then, me saying that I feel that absolutely, absolutely. I totally agree with you. I totally agree. And they're they're so daft. And I like it. Took the first one. I listened to the Putin's buttocks one first, and because the the buttocks element is such a surreal yeah, element, I yeah. still think I, I should have listened to them in a different order. Because <laughs> it took me the first half of that one to go, "What? Oh, I'm right, we're doing this." And then I was sort of, and then you got me. I was in the undertone. Yeah. You know, I kind of understood the. Just, just for people who might be listening to this, what what, what happened was uh, I, uh, in that story, um, as you know, but um, Vladimir Putin's buttocks leave him, and they turn up in Berlin uh, outside a gay club. Take selfies and they announce that they've left him because they're gay they're not saying that he's gay but they are and they want to live you know they want to live in freedom uh, and this creates an international incident which I'm able to solve but um, yeah so that, that kind of the tall tale aspect yes, of it, the kind yeah, of um, yeah. like it really and because you can hear it's recorded was it in the King's Head I did it in the King's Head in it Crouch sounds End. like it's in a pub do you know, do you know what I mean and yeah, it sounds like well, you're sat at the table recounting this story I was uh, that's really good to, to, to know because we were very careful about that just the whole pitch of delivery and relationship with the microphone are, I mean people will say that you've got to do radio like you're imagining like you're talking to one person's ear but it's not always the case you know if you're doing a sketch show or whatever you know in a big room it it, it, it takes a different delivery style but I was very conscious that Andy Hamilton came to see one of the shows and we were talking and uh, in Edinburgh and he'd just done a he'd just done a solo show and I think he'd done it in the radio theatre and he was saying that the size of the room dragged him into uh, a formality yeah. of delivery that he didn't really intend to have and um, 
and I thought, yeah, I want to do this in a in a small, intimate room where I can deliver it in a very not a laid back way, but but in a very intimate and uh, undeclamatory. Yes, it's very way. calmly delivered, yeah, given the yeah. enormous claims you're making. <laughs> yes, the enormous, the enormous, yes. particularly in gluten free Jesus, the huge kind of Illuminati conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, 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 and freeing Jesus from the Vatican dungeons and so exactly, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the. The, I mean, and some of the jokes in them were proper laugh out loud <laughs> on the train jokes. Oh, what about um, when uh, Kim Jong Un is appearing on the Graham Norton show? Yes. I mean, just the, the, you know the, the nouns involved here will give people <laughs> some idea of the stew of ideas. This kind of bubbling thing, um, and he's he's talking almost as an avatar using um, Mad Frankie Fraser. As an yeah, avatar. he's using the spirit of Mad Frankie Fraser as his interpreter. Yeah, yeah. there's, uh, there's yeah. a like I, I, I kind of shout laughed at the joke about him saying, oh, you know, Kim and Kanye have got to learn that if you mess with a, an unstable dictatorship, you get a slap. Yeah. And in Korean, that rhymes great. Yeah. And that, I That's properly right. love that joke. It's it was such a, a good joke. It was a, if you, if you, what was it? If you, uh, if you can't uh, accept uh, a nuclear strike uh, on your house, then don't. Do the don't, don't, don't do the insult. In Korean, that rhymes, Graham. Yeah. yeah. What, I, what I love about those, I mean, they're obviously so rich. They're kind of super rich and just bubbling over with ideas. How do you select, how do you edit oh, something like that when, when, when absurdity is the, the, yeah. the stock in trade? Well, that's, the, that's the material. How do you make decisions about it's what? It's really, really complicated. It's really, really hard. I mean, I do a lot of research. Thing is, they're very surreal and they're bonkers, and I'm I'm casting a nod all the time to the audience. Look, this is a story, but let's get on board and enjoy it. Um, so I enjoy that playfulness of crashing the the frame, if you like, you know. But, but what's what, crashing the frame? Well, so so I don't know. Just so I'm, at one moment, I'm telling the story as if I'm totally in the situation; and it's real, and then I'll do a joke which. Um, acknowledges the fact that I'm telling a story. I love the phrase crashing the frame. Is that, is that a film? A thing I don't TV? know really. Yeah, it must be. Uh, well. so, but the, the important thing is because they are bonkers, like, uh, uh, and I'm not telling you this, I'm telling them this, that, you know, like there's one of them where my cat, bec- actually, this is a good example of how I put them together. So there's one about my cat becoming super intelligent and she almost takes over the world uh, with a, 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 a horde of um, telepathically controlled zombie rats. Um, and it started off, two things happened. And, and uh, what I collect little images or ideas um, and then put them down and then just make a note of them, think something in that. So I was doing, I was going up to Newcastle and I was reading an article on artificial intelligence in the paper. And when I got to Newcastle, you know, the Tyneside cinema is so fantastic when you're doing the stand, you're there for three days. I went to see Werner Herzog's documentary called Lo and Behold, which is about the history of the internet and projecting the future possibilities of robots and artificial intelligence and all the kind of doomsday scenarios of our relationship with them, whether we're all going to be unemployed or blown up or whatever. Anyway, I thought this is really rich. I want to do something on artificial intelligence. And I, I got loads of books. I went to the robot exhibition at the, uh, at the Science Museum, big stack of books, and I'm reading and I'm making loads of jokes, writing loads of jokes about smart houses and computers and blah, blah, blah. And I had some good stuff. But it wasn't, there was no kind of pulse to it. It was all just jokes. And, uh, and then I was reading in one of the books about neural lace, which 
Ian M. Banks. You know, Ian Banks used to write sci-fi novels as Ian M. Banks. Back in the late 70s, I think, he, he had this idea of neural lace, which is uh, nanobots getting injected into the human bloodstream, which would swim to your brain and expand your brain power. And I think he even had a sort of a predictive sense of Wi-Fi connectivity. Mm-hmm. And I was reading in one of these books how they now, or five years ago, they started testing neural lace for real on rodents in the United States. And then I had another little light bulb moment because our cat, Lily, um, after we first got her stray, turned up, long story, let's not go into it. She's in the back garden, she's caught a mouse. And I'm just appalled by this. You know, here we are, Guardian reading liberal in North London. I don't want that kind of cruelty associated with me. When that cat comes in, I shall be very stern with her. I shan't give her any treats or stroke her. I shall make her understand that she's transgressed a moral line. And, uh, and of course, the cat comes in and she's like, oh, meow. And I thought, oh, God, you're so cute. In <laughs> and it struck me at that time. I thought, if you had a cat with that kind of charm and feral brutality, if you had a cat that had an IQ of 150, it would rule the world. Just it, it would, you know, all the you know, cats on, on the Internet. But you know, so suddenly I thought, ah, so the cat gets involved in the smart house. And yes. the, with the help of the smart house, my cat becomes super intelligent. Um, so those two ideas had been floating around and I suddenly thought, saw the point where that could be the kind of, you know, it's like a, if you like, like a, a parody of a horror film. And I was watching loads of zombie movies and blah, 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 and just getting ideas for it. So I get different ideas and then try and find the way where there's some kind of story that will go through it. And uh, and then I sort of parody the genres that I like, like, you know, any kind of movie and, you know, sort of these uh, adventure films or, you know, detective movies and, and, and just try and crush them together. But it, 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 it really is hard because you go down a lot of blind alleys and often in the first drafts, there's way too much expositional stuff or just pure information jokes, you know, jokes made out of the research that just, weigh it down too much and so finding the story is the really hard bit to carry the with the putin's buttocks ones the the show i'm doing this year is about the silk road you know the new silk road all the china uh the 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 one belt one road initiative where they're creating recreating all these trade routes of the ancient silk roads that used to go across from Beijing to the West, Marco Polo being the most notable example of somebody who travelled it and traded on it. And it's so, you know, the, the history of it is just so rich with 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 incidents and stories and and so on. And the new one is is coming out now, uh, is being built and China's getting lots of soft power economic influence on, 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 on various countries through uh stretching this thing out they're building trains now that go all the way um and and as you hear so here am i just doing expositional stuff (laughs) but it's a fast that is the geopolitical geostrategic center of the world now it's why for example um the the, you know we had the phrase in the 19th century the great game where you know india uh, the the northern borders of india and and, and afghanistan the british were crucial they were very concerned to protect that because there was the danger of the russians maybe taking india and so on so it's always been a, a, a focal point and never more than now um and so i wanted to do something about the silk road and I, i've i've worked out a way to do it now and it's working really nicely but i started re- researching that 
two or three years ago. And then I, and I use it as an excuse to go off on tangents because I know that, you know, it's going to be serendipity that gets me finding something that is the nub of a story. So I'm thinking, oh, well, some, one of the Silk Road routes was through, uh, was through Russia and so on. So I thought, well, that's an excuse to read some Russian writers I haven't read, you know, and I won't feel guilty reading Gogol and Chekhov for two days. So I read Gogol, The Nose, short story where a civil servant, his nose disappears one morning, and then he finds out a few days later that the nose has become a civil servant more senior to him in his department. I'm reading that, and I suddenly go, oh, what if... Vladimir Putin's buttocks left him. You know, it's the same thing. A physical part of the body leaves somebody. I thought it's Russian. And I thought, it'd be just so pissed off, the idea that somebody was saying that his buttocks were gay, you know. So, so that's how that story came sure, along. Sure, sure, sure. So, okay. so I, I, I think, right, I need a frame to work down, read about artificial intelligence, read about the Silk Road. But if I go off on a tangent, then that's fine because the the tangent will lead me somewhere. I trust the fact that somewhere underneath, you know, like, I'm sure you get this, where you've got a routine and it's working fine or whatever, and then suddenly you'll have a ping to restructure it or throw a different joke in or change something minorly, which makes the routine way, way stronger. You know, your subconscious is always working. So I allow myself to, you know, I start off on fairly rigid, disciplined uh, f- tracks and then I allow myself to get taken wherever it goes until I've got a few images or a few ideas or a little incident here or there um, that I think has got some traction this one for example is called um, new show is called um, Eurasia's Most Eligible Psychopaths and Their Lovely Homes and um, and I had the, simply had the idea of doing a hello type interview with some brutal oligarch mm. in Central Asia somewhere. And you know, the way that they're all talking about how lovely this guy is and caring. And you know that he's, you know, boiling opponents in, mm-hmm. in, in glue in a, you know, in a back room somewhere. And he's, so I just thought that's a nice sort of dissonant image to have. And um, uh, yeah, so, and then I'll keep that and then. Sorry, go ahead. Um, well, you referred earlier on to... There's a couple of things I've kind of mentally pegged that I'm going to forget. <laughs> there's, um, you referred earlier on to having written some jokes about AI, yes. but it was all a bit dry. Yeah. So you'd written the jokes first. There was like you had spare material. I, like if I think of the AI one from that Lily Evil Cat quiz, yes. my favourite joke probably in that is the, the one about you're talking to your... Uh, I think you're talking to your Hoover or some AI yes. thing, and you're saying, "Well, you know that we all make mistakes. That's what makes us human." Yes. And then there's a yes. lovely pause while we fill in your. You, like I listened back to it because I remembered it as you go. That's what makes us human. Sorry, but you don't. <laughs> it, like that, it's too elegant for that. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Is all yeah. done by us. I think I had lived that one on the night actually. Oh, great! Because the the Hoover in this one, as you remember, is a he. She's a, a reconditioned bomb disposal drone that had some traumatic experiences in. Afghanistan, so she got reconditioned as a Hoover and she's capable of autonomous movement and she's from Glasgow. And she inadvertently enables the cat yes. to become super intelligent and kicks okay. off the whole thing. And she's apologizing to me and she said, I-, I thought you'd like a talking cat. So I went online and found out about Neural Lace and ordered it on the end. I'm really sorry. And then and I say, oh, that's all right. You know, we all make mistakes. And I think I did. I had lived it on the night and it was a nice, lovely. Because my, I mean, my, uh, my guess when you were saying you'd written the jokes first, was that you had written jokes like that? Oh, first. no. They, no. But what, what I do is, I mean, I, again, I like to be pretty disciplined in the way that I work. I mean, the, the, the really good stuff comes out of 
a period of, you know, terror, sleepless nights, loads of images sort of talking to me in my head the whole time. But you've got to start somewhere and actually get stuff down on the page, you know. So, okay, I'm going to write something about AI. I don't know what it is, but I'll, I'll write some jokes. I'll write jokes and I'll, I'll piles of notebooks, you know, about things out of the books that might are interesting but not funny. And then I write stuff and I write stuff. And then out of that... Uh, I got the idea of the smart house talking to each gotcha. other and I gave okay. them all characters and and uh, so it, it, it but I, I always think once you write stuff down it works your brain but also it means you've got something to change you know we've all sat there with a blank page thinking writing something down and thinking this is not as funny as the funniest thing I ever wrote and then you have to remind yourself well nothing's as funny as the funniest thing you ever wrote until you've worked at it and also only one thing will ever be the funniest thing you ever wrote <laughs> that's, adjec- you know, that's very reassuring that, that's superlative adjectives for you it's like, <laughs> so I, I, I work on, and, and it can be dispiriting and terrifying but I think oh fuck it just just do the jokes write the, something will come out of this something will come out of this you know and so rather than just sitting there blankly and you know dicking off i i i write um and 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 then hope that something will come along but i mean what comes what stays in the original script there's often very very little of what i originally started with and then once i've got a chunk i think well how would that happen okay if vladimir putin's buttocks missed him what would be the consequences he um he tells the germans to uh, to give them back and the germans don't want to do it and uh, there's an international crisis. So what's the crisis and how can I be in the story? Mm. Uh, I can be in the story if I'm some kind of go-between. Uh, well, how would I be a go-between? And then sure. I get into the fact, I okay. say that I've met Vladimir Putin and I saved his life. So, you know, and um, and I borrow stuff that is, I also quite like throwing in stuff which is true. Yes, go, I was going oh, to ask about that. Okay. You know, like in another one, Gwyneth Paltrow figures quite... Uh, this is one that I don't think you've heard because it was... Um, I'll probably be doing it in the next radio series. I did it last year and Gwyneth Paltrow turns up here. And um, I had the idea of a dream catcher bursting. So that's why my radio sh- series is called Broken Dream Catcher. I had the idea, what if your dream catcher broke? You know, the, the American Indians, um, the Native Americans would have these, these dream catchers which would ca- ev- catch evil spirits and bad dreams. And uh, so what happens is um, Gwyneth's round at my house and I say that I met her through Tim McInerney, who, bump, who she bumped into on the tube. She ran on and bumped into him just as the doors were sliding <laughs> shut. And uh, although actually construction wise, what I do is I don't put it that way because I don't want the laugh to be at the end of the sentence there. I want it to be just a little bit. So what I do, I say, you know, Tim walks into the pub one night with Gwyneth Paltrow. He said, I don't need to bring it. I was sitting on the tube coming up as usual from Hoban and... Just as the doors were sliding shut, she she ran on and bumped into me because I don't want it to be too much. I don't want I don't want that to be the joke as a kind of as if I've written it as a good joke. It's just a little sort of nod to the fact that I it's a bit silly. You see what I mean? So I want to okay. take some of the laugh off that so that it doesn't sound that's the kind of joke I'm doing because as my you best want set. texture. Not I want a texture. Yeah, yeah. So I do know Tim. I've known him for years. So people think, well, maybe he does know Gwyneth Paltrow. Maybe he does know. Him. So you you're getting this. You know, you're getting this kind of idea of um, where's the line between the reality. Yes. That reminds me of um, Ken Campbell a little bit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He would do these huge, well, long stories. Yeah. And you'd be like, 
that, I mean, that yeah, detail absolutely. is true. Yeah. So what is going? You know, well, which do you know, is it's true? really funny you say that because I watched a couple of his saw a couple of his solo shows. One years ago at the Finborough Arms in 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 in, in Earl's Court, um, called Memoirs of a Furtive Nudist, and um, uh, uh, and it, it, that has always been a kind of reference. I've always, I was always impressed by exactly that thing with him of playing. You're not sure where the line is, you know. Yeah. And the other reason that I do them is that, like this, where you can't can't quite see what's true, what's not, is that it's it's an oblique way of addressing the whole fake news spin. Uh, world of lies that we live in you know we live in a in a world which uh, obviously we all do we live in fiction to some degree all the time you know that dividing line between pure reality and pure imagination is it, 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 it's really hard to to draw it in real life i mean you know you look at the political situation in this country and how much of brexit let's not get onto that in detail but how much of it is generated by a sense of self myth Mm. about who we are and what our identity is, which we need them. We need senses of who we are, which are based on, uh, inevitably on, on myth and legend and distillation. But at the same time, they have to be counteracted by, by, by empirical thought and critical thinking. So I like to play with that line in, in, in various ways, but not least because it's, it's fun mm. as well as it's funny. So in the Dreamcatcher one, Gwyneth tells me that, you know, if you don't get your... Dreamcatcher regularly cleaned and emptied. It's a bit like a Hoover bag. The uh, all the bad dreams and evil spirits in there will escape, and there'll be all sorts of untrammeled, unfettered ids and sexual libidos just swarming around it. It'll be like the whole area will be like Weatherspoons at closing time, you know. And um, and so that's the story in that one. But it just came from that little idea of a Dreamcatcher breaking. I thought that's quite a nice idea. Mm. But then how do you whip it into a story? And then I later on thought, oh, Gwyneth Paltrow would be the kind of person who would have a, have a dream catcher. And I'll sort of make believe that she comes into my pub. And then you have to justify why she comes into the pub yeah, and why okay. she likes it and so on. So you ask questions about, okay, if that is the reality, how do you get to it in a way that is in some way plausible? And going back to your original question, which you've probably forgotten, which is the important thing is with all the whimsy and the, I like, you know, kaleidoscopic sense of images, you've got to have a, a, a world, create a world with its own rules. You, you know, it's got to have a rigid, um, rigid parameters, even if they're different. Otherwise, it just becomes vapid whimsy rather than it's got to have rules. And, and, and that's why I work really hard on a plot as well, because the plot has got to be dramatic and no holes in it, you know. Um, and so you, you've still got a lot of license to be imaginative there, but there's a really rigorous, sense of structure to them all and that's really important otherwise they just don't stand up you know it's just somebody's putting uh, randomly unrelated things together uh, and and you know which is fine if you're a surrealist sculptor from 1922 but not if you're you know if you're telling a story that with laughs in it it's got to have it's got to have a rigid structure. So underneath, there's a there's a there's a really really rigid shape to them, you know, and that's that's often the hardest thing to get. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of times as you were describing the process there, the words that came up were sort of discipline. Yes. And uh, um, there was one one point where you said, "Oh, great! Now I can." go and read some uh, Gogol yes. without feeling guilty. Yeah. So talk to me about the relationship between the kind of the work ethic, the mm-hmm. drive, the discipline, 
and how that creates like guilt. If you, you know, what, what is, what's that relationship? What's going on mentally to, right. to, to help you through the hard work elements, you yes. know, the blank page or yes. the rest of it. And how have you developed that? And what are the pros and cons? Um, I'm getting better at it now, now that I'm in the, the, the fourth of these, these shows. So I understand the process better. And I understand that I need, if you like, downtime, uh, research or reading, and it will lead somewhere. And I think the, the crucial thing to, is accept, it, to accept is that the amount of research and discursive reading that you do is relevant to the finished product, but the amount that will actually go into it is always very, very small. You know, And once you accept that you have to do a lot in order to crush it down to the stuff you need, then that helps. Um, and, you know, I, as I say, if, if I'm sitting there reading stuff that I enjoy reading, you're thinking, well, is this work? I should be, I should have, you know, a thousand words every day to show for my endeavours, you know, because that's what I do, you know. Because that's what you Because that's what done. I do. And because pretty much, yeah. I mean, you know, probably not a thousand words every day, but, you know, that idea of actually working at stuff and creating new stuff and, and, uh, and very obviously having something to show for it, for some reason has always been, I've always felt that that's important. Now I'm a bit more relaxed about uh, how I go about it. As I say, I will think, right, this week I'm just reading and taking notes. And, you know, um, uh, so I, I'm I'm relaxing on that. And I think part of it as well is just the experience of been having uh, having done it for so long. And I you start to understand what you get out of it at the end, you know, what the end product is, and it does work out. So therefore, again, you know, that's the way I work. So, uh, but I think I could never be doing these shows unless I'd done all the previous things that I'd done. You know, I know how to write a joke. I know how to turn a newspaper article into five jokes that will work kind of. And I know how to do a sitcom script. So I know how to do all these things. And now it's combining them all together into something very, I mean, I find it very challenging and I still get utter despair and terror. I mean, I did two, Oh, I did two runs of the show last night and it's been, I've done five. So I've done five of this new show and they've all worked pretty well, but there's some big chunks of stuff that needed changing. And last night I got it to a point where, you know, it still needs a lot of polishing and tinkering and so on. But I know if I had to open in Edinburgh tomorrow, I wouldn't be, I'd be, I'd be happy, you know? So I know how to do it. And, but, but, but if you'd have been speaking to me, uh, two or three days ago, I'd been going, Oh God, I don't know if I'm really, you know, there's this big chunk and I don't know if I'm ever going to solve it. And then part of me goes, Nick, you've done this, you've been in this position the last, you know, with every sitcom you've ever written or, you know, with every, uh, with every one of these shows that you've done, you always hit these kind of walls. That's part of the process. I'm getting better now at accepting that rather than thinking that a bad week is, uh, uh, or or a less than perfect script is um, a sign that I should just you know kill myself. <laughs> oh God, I'm so pleased to hear it. <laughs> yeah, you you you. I feel that I have. It's harder to 
kind of convince myself or it's it, I, I listen to my own lies my own self-criticism I listen to it less often now yes. it's harder for the critical voice to go maybe the last time yeah. it was luck yeah. and there's been yeah, eight yeah, yeah. or nine exactly. times you know exactly. sure yeah. do you know what I mean sit down <laughs> but I suppose at the same time you do need a certain amount of that willingness to I mean you've got to be really ruthless about your own stuff as well haven't you you know what I mean that difference between oh this is kind of okay and actually is it really you know that's uh, a good point that's a good point because if you completely quell the self-critical voice there goes equality control you're, you're, how do you be happy you're, <laughs> then you're living in a solipsistic bubble of arrogance which you know just what, what you don't create anything you know it, it pushing yourself under pressure and I suppose part of doing these shows is that it is challenging and so it's exciting to fi- find out if I can do it again and how I can improve them and now of course when you know when I come back to them start a new one I've maybe got a few I've got the experience to have a better uh, I get through them quicker you know I, I actually get to a, a mm. I get to the various points of, of creation a bit more easily because you learn technical things the whole time you know and uh but you do need that, you know, you do need to put yourself under pressure. Do you ever uh, write with newer comics or other comics? I, I've never really, uh, not a lot, but I enjoy writing with other people. Obviously on the sitcoms and so on, I've written, and with Andy Hamilton, when we did our radio series together and we did it as a live show as well, we would write together all the time. This was Old Harry's Game. Uh, no, no, that was him. We did a, a sketch show called The Million Pound Radio Show for a bit, yeah. Um, so in that situation, I've probably done it more. Occasionally, um, I'll write with Henning when he needs jokes for a... Henning Vane when he needs jokes or something. I've done that for a while, but I enjoy working with him. And I love doing that. I love working for other people, probably more than I do working for my own stuff with other people. But I love that kind of sort of taking on, understanding the angles and where they're coming from and trying to do stuff in their voices. Like I wrote for Dave Allen for a, um, for a series. Oh, that reminds me of something in Stuart's, uh, Stuart Lee's podcast where he's talking about reading a book on Dave Allen and got no idea about how the material came together. And I was, I was thinking of emailing him actually because I wrote, I wrote a series <laughs> with him and I don't really have any idea either. Oh, we I used to sit around in his house just sort of, you know, talking about stuff and you'd write material off the back of your notes that you took in the meeting and send it to him. But the stuff that he actually came up with was, you know, you could see some kind of dim resemblance of what you came okay. up with. But I don't know quite how he did it because it was always so tightly honed by the time he got onto the yeah, stage. Because, so, so that's it, interesting. I love that. I love that kind of writer's room where it's just talking. It's almost like you just want to... I think the most useful way for me to write sometimes is just to have a conversation with someone, record yes. it and forget it's being recorded and yeah. that's the hardest thing for me because yeah. it's so much easier to be naturally funny when you're not thinking about yeah. Yeah. making notes trying yeah. to be funny all the rest yeah. of it to let it bubble out well I think that's another important point which is I'm very conscious as well when I'm doing the disciplined writing on my own in the house and I'm, uh, I know that then I've got to when I get it up on its feet in front of an audience uh, I have to then smash it so that it's not there's a danger of it all being too written and it doesn't come off the page of and then another phase of the process where I I then ruffle it up you know you have to and, learn it and then forget or, it or I'll I'll improvise it I'll have a, like I'll do a couple in the house here you know to friends just to loosen up and I'll have the script 
and I'll try and be off the script, but I'll I'll refer yeah. to it. But but I try and be off the script so that so that it becomes a little more conversational, you know, and constantly trying to just take it from prose to spoken language. Uh, and that's important as well, you know, just losing that that sense of isolation where you do get more rigid and unsocial, I suppose, in the delivery of it, you know, or the conception of it. But, yeah. How have you found getting older within comedy? Uh, well, overall, um, sometimes, sometimes you think, I don't, I never address it on stage. I don't, you know, I mean, you know, I, I just don't like that whole kind of, you know, I can't make it to the toilet in time. I've got grey hair. Oh, so fucking what? You know, I, I just don't care, you know. So I don't, I never talk about it on stage. Um, but you are conscious sometimes that you know, you'll make a reference and you think, well, that was 20 years ago. And you think, oh, this audience is 20. You know what I mean? Um, an accidental, you wouldn't deliberately put a reference of that's old in, but uh, that, uh, that old in, but you know, you might suddenly you realize that some of your frames of reference are completely archaic. Um, but I would say, so I, I kind of ignore it really. Um, and I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I think sometimes people look at your poster in Edinburgh and think, Oh, he's too old for me. You know what I mean? But, uh, trying to address that by, you know, when, when younger people do come, they, they tend to enjoy it, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think the, just the, 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 the sheer image of the fact that you're clearly older is, um, is a bit of a stumbling block to automatically attracting younger audience. But um, in terms of actually when they're there, it's not a problem. And, again, I think that's partly because this, as I say, I'm just really excited about the kind of stuff that I'm doing now, and it's and I, and I couldn't have done it without all the experience. But it's like I don't. I'm so I, I feel really grateful that suddenly I have found this new surge of excitement and enthusiasm. Where a lot of where a lot of people are looking to I don't know retire or just stay in a particular groove. And I, I, I and just that excitement of thinking I've opened a new a door to a new area is fantastic, you know. And it so. I don't really think about it that much. I have to remind myself sometimes because, um, you know, as I say, you might accidentally write a reference that, that half the audience would not get just, just because they were born before it happened. You know? <laughs> what is retirement? It doesn't exist, man. I mean, I, I, you know, I've never done this. I'm, obviously, I've always wanted to make a living out of it, but I, I, I very quickly realised when I uh, first started getting... I was never a huge TV name, but I was getting quite a lot of TV sort of late 80s, early 90s. And I realised when that was happening that I didn't like it. I don't want to be, I really don't want to be a huge, you know, huge identi identifiable, recognisable face. Um, I've always wanted to do it to make a living, but uh, retirement doesn't come into it because the, the main impulse is just doing it to see what I can do with it, you know. And that's the exciting thing you know, finding, it's not just repeating, it's not just repeating standard tropes and styles now. I'm finding a whole, yeah, a whole new range of stuff to to, to improve and explore. And, you know, it, it, that's really exciting. I wouldn't want to, couldn't stop, you know. Are you happy? 
I th- I th- as, as much as one can, you know, how, how do you define that? You know, <laughs> get into Schopenhauer and uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, yeah, I pretty much am. I mean, that doesn't, ex- you know, that doesn't protect me from being despairing and anxious and, you know, uh, dwelling on the mistakes that I've made and, and thinking, oh, God, if I was just earning a little bit more, but fuck, I make a good living and I've got a lovely house, you know, and I've been in a relationship that started as a one-night stand in Edinburgh in 1984 and it's still going strong. <laughs> so, you know, how can I complain? I've got a great cat, you know. So, I mean, you know, you do, I think you, you can't... Yeah, it's pretty good. It's not like I'm tripping on ecstasy, either real or, or, or self-induced uh, all the time. But why would you want that, you know? Then you'd be some kind of fucking airy-fairy, barefooted, mash-up, new-age Buddhist, you know, going around in some completely contrived... <laughs> charisma of contentment and joy and you just want to fucking punch them don't you <laughs> that's where all the violence in the world comes from fucking smug people like that say I'm happy oh well fucking good for you and your fucking contentment oh I've just transcended another earthly desire well fuck you just fuck off and be like the rest of us you're fucking engaged you know <laughs> very revealing answer <laughs> I'm, I'm saying my, my favourite note of that was, uh, was simply I've got a great cat I love the idea that I, would ask, that I would ask someone, are you happy? And that the answer would be, do you mean how good is my cat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of it comes down to that. She is a great cat, though. So that was Nick Revel. Thank you so much to Nick. Do not miss his Edinburgh show, the title of which is made completely explicit in the show notes of this episode. Um, so come along and uh, and see him and and just get that lovely, whimsical, absurd sort of stuff he's talking about. Get that first hand. I'm really looking forward to seeing that show. Uh, and I, of course, am at the Monkey Baron at three o'clock every day doing my show Primer. So you can book online via for both of us via the uh, the link in the show notes thank you to all the usual suspects Jake Crossland for logging podcast consultant Peter Dobbing Rob Smountain for the music and this episode was produced by Nathan Wood Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for all your extra bits from not just this one but all the others that's all for now speak to you soon 